Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be proclaiming God's word today from the gospel reading, Luke chapter 16, 1 to 9. I'll read to you again verse 9 on the front of your bulletin. And I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this text from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 9, it's sometimes called the parable of the dishonest manager. And it tends to raise a lot of questions for people. One of the main ones being, why does Jesus seem to use the example of a dishonest person to teach his disciples something about how they should live and even how they should handle money? It's a good question. This is one of Jesus' more challenging parables and we've got a bit to wrestle with as we work out what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying. By the end, what we'll see is that his main message is certainly not about being dishonest, but it is more along the lines of being streetwise with money for eternity. That's the title that I've given to this sermon, Streetwise for Eternity. And to unpack that, we'll look closely at the text and we'll see what Jesus does here. He first tells a story, he then makes an observation, and finally he gives an application. A story, an observation, and an application. So first is the story itself. Let's work through it today. He begins like this, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So first you've got the rich man. He's depicted as a bit of a high flyer. He has a huge number of assets and investments. He's done very, very well for himself. Impressive olive groves, huge wheat farms, who knows what else. That's the rich man. Then he's got this other person, the manager. This is the guy who takes care of everything. In the older translations, this was the steward. Now, a steward is a very significant word in Christian theology, confessing as Christians that God owns everything and we are only ever stewards of what God gives us. That's what this man is. He's a steward for the rich man. In modern terms, it might be something like an owner and a CEO, something like that. But then the rich man, the owner, he gets word that the manager has been squandering his property. And that word has very negative connotations because it's the same word that's used in the previous chapter for what the prodigal son was doing with his father's inheritance, squandering it. Then we read this. So, the rich man summoned him and said to him, what's this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So he's confronted He's called to account and he's as good as sacked. He's gone, he's finished. Don't come Monday, Mr. Manager, you're out of here. And this is when the manager comes up with his little scheme. 
The manager said to himself, what will I do now that the manager's taking the position away? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. He knows he's effectively lost his job. So what's he doing? He's weighing up his options for future employment and he does not like his chances. But there's a little window of opportunity here. Because rather than marching him straight off the premises, the rich man has asked for a record of the accounts. So the manager sees his moment to make the best of a bad situation. So that even if he gets kicked out on the street, he's going to have some people to take care of him, people indebted to him. This is his little scheme. Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. I do you a favor, one day you'll do me a favor. That's what's going on here. What a scheme. Because he's going to get away with this, I reckon. What's the rich man going to do? The deals are going to be there in black and white. What's the rich man going to do? Is he going to go around the district later on having to explain to everyone that actually the manager didn't have the authority to do this? That actually they can't get these deals and he's going to, they're going to still owe the full amount? The rich man would be a laughing stock. This manager has been quite shrewd. He's pulled a fast one, hasn't he? And that's, I think, how we make sense of how the rich man responds when we read this. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. That's one of the really challenging parts of this story for people, isn't it? You think, why does the master commend him? But notice carefully what it says. He commended the dishonest manager not because he was dishonest, but because he was shrewd, because he was streetwise, we could say. It is possible to be impressed by someone's skills and strategy without affirming their behaviour. That's what I think is going on here. Parents sometimes do this with children, by the way. So let me give you an example. Let's say that the parents have something like an iPad and the children are not supposed to use it and so there's a password on it. Now, a clever little child finds out a way somehow of figuring out the password on this iPad and is caught playing games on it later on. Mum and Dad find out, the child gets in trouble, gets sent to bed early and later on that night, Dad turns to Mum and says, gee, that was pretty clever, wasn't it? How did they figure that out? We are at the very same time disapproving and yet impressed. Something like that is what's going on here with this master and the dishonest manager. He commends him for his shrewdness. Thus far, the story. Then we move on to the second part where Jesus makes an observation. 
This is in the second part of verse 8. Jesus says, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. This is Jesus' observation. He's not necessarily calling the disciples to any action at this point. I think there's something implied here, but on the face of it, it's simply an observation. The children of light are basically Jesus' disciples. Children of God who have been called by Jesus into the light. The children of this age are basically not disciples. It's a contrast between Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers, children of the light, children of this age. And Jesus' observation is that children of this age, non-Christians, unbelievers, are generally speaking more shrewd, more streetwise in dealing with people in this world than Christians are. Isn't this a curious observation from Jesus? In my experience, reading this with people, studying it with others, most Christians, when they think about this for a while, they admit, yep, there's something that resonates here. I find it interesting reflecting on this as a pastor, seeing many people like many of you who work out in the world in various professions and then come into the church and serve on committees and other such things. Because what I do sometimes see on your faces is frustration. Frustration and even laments about how the church sometimes functions in this world and if only we could be a bit more clever in how we do things. Now, it's true, I've also heard many parishioners say that they enjoy serving in the life of the church because there is a different culture, there are more authentic relationships, it's not dog-eat-dog, there is that other side of it. But when it comes to just how we deal with stuff in the world, whether it be red tape or city councils or banks or internet companies or whatever it is, we can probably admit that as Christians, we are not always the most streetwise. Now, Jesus doesn't exactly say why this is the case. He just makes this observation. But I think we can reflect on it and wonder, could it be, for example, that there's something about being called to lives of self-sacrificial love as Christians that actually makes you more vulnerable to be taken advantage of. It's worth thinking about, at least. Or could it be that, as Christians, we are called to trust in God to provide for us, and that this could, at the very same time, open one up to the temptation to be naive about how this world actually works? As I said, Jesus doesn't give these reasons in the text, but they are actually thoughts that some people in this congregation have shared with me during the week as to why this might be the case. What I do think is implied in this observation, especially when you take it together with the next verse, is that Jesus is saying there is something we can learn as Christians from our non-Christian neighbours. As you watch non-Christian family members, friends, co-workers conduct themselves in the world, you can learn from them. Not from examples of dishonesty, not from selfishness, not from greed. That's not what Jesus draws attention to him. 
you can learn from their shrewdness. You can learn from their cleverness in how this world works. You Christians can learn to be more streetwise. Now, we'll see in a moment that for Christians, there is a very different end and goal in mind for all of this. But in the first place, Jesus says you can do a lot worse than learn to be streetwise as you watch non-Christian people in this world and how they go about things. So there was the story, there's the observation, and then finally, there's Jesus' application. In verse 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, you disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. That's the big word, that second last word there. That's the emphasis, the eternal homes. This is the very different end and goal for Christian people. We are to learn to be streetwise like the manager, but streetwise for eternity. Not just for this world, not just for feathering our own nests. We are to be shrewd in how we use the resources God has given us in this world, but with that crucial difference, with eternity in mind for ourselves and for others. But let's just go back a step. Because what trips most people up at this point is the dishonest wealth part, isn't it? For example, if Jesus had said, the man in the story made friends by dishonest wealth for this world, I say to you, make friends by honest wealth for the world to come, then we'd say, okay, no worries. That rolls off the tongue a bit easier. But that's not what Jesus says. He makes a point of comparison between the dishonest wealth in the story and our dishonest wealth in some sense. So what's going on there? The old translations used to refer to this as the unrighteous mammon. I think that's good to keep in mind. The unrighteous mammon. Mammon is a word for wealth and possessions in the Bible. And unrighteous is a much bigger category than just dishonest. Unrighteous has to do with what fits with God and what doesn't. Jesus is pointing to something bigger here than just a few dollars which have been gotten in a way that's not completely above board. I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he uses the phrase dishonest wealth or unrighteous mammon for what his disciples have. I think he's saying that there is a sense in which whether we like it or not, the whole economic system in this world is corrupted in some sense. It's tainted. It's not pure. And there is no escaping it. We would like to imagine as Christians that every single dollar in our bank account and every asset that we own is above reproach. But are you so sure? Are you so sure that there isn't tucked away somewhere in your superannuation funds portfolio some slightly questionable investment? Are you sure that there isn't some item in your house that hasn't been produced by someone in another country effectively working for slave labour? I don't especially enjoy thinking about these realities or asking you about them, 
but I do it because it seems to me that's what Jesus does to us here. He encourages us to be sober-minded about this. And to be clear, he is not in any way saying that we should contribute to this dishonesty. We are not to contribute to the unrighteousness of the system we live in. We think of Jesus elsewhere saying, be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Insofar as we are able, Christians can hopefully contribute to a more just system. Yes, try and shop and bank and invest as ethically as you can, but at the same time, Jesus says, realize that at some level you cannot avoid the unrighteous mammon of this world. It's just the way it is. The big difference then is how you use it. How you use it as children of the light. You do not use it just to do favours for people in this world who can pay you back in this world. You use it to make friends for eternity. You use the resources of this world for eternal purposes. And I can think of so many wonderful examples of this in the life of the church already. Many of you, for example, give money to overseas missions. And you think, you've got this money. There's all sorts of things you could do with it. You could use this money to do favours for people who will take care of you someday down the track in this world. And instead, Christian people often choose to use this money for the mission of the gospel in other places. Now, just think about this. Just imagine that money that you have used for that purpose. It's part of what is at work so that many people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the gift of eternal life. But you never meet them in this world. But then just imagine you do meet them in eternity. You've made friends for eternity by using that unrighteous mammon for the mission of the gospel. I think it's something like that that Jesus is speaking about in this text. Dear children of the light, there is one final and very important note here not to miss. It is that the one who tells this story and makes this observation and gives this application is also the one who goes to the cross to give his life for you, to rise again from the dead for you. And he is the reason and his death and resurrection is the reason that that eternal home is secure for you. Your Lord Jesus is the one of whom the Apostle Paul writes when he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you may become rich. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So that now in this world, you can take that unrighteous mammon and you can use it towards that eternal end. So learn to be streetwise, streetwise for eternity. God grant it to us for Jesus' sake. Amen.